episode of the Dragonfire podcast. My name is James Doolin. I am the author of No Heart for a Thief, and I am joined, as always, with my co-host, Nathan Klimbara, a blogger at the Before We Go blog. And today we have a special guest interview with Tatiana Obi, the author of A Forging of Age Duology and the forthcoming new novella, uh, Sister Samurai, coming out November 1st. Am I correct, Tatiana? That is correct. Well, it is so great to have you here. Um, typically, we go right into an interview right now, but uh, Nathan and I wanted to take uh, this opportunity uh, to address um, some things going on in the world right now. There is a lot of strife going on in Israel and Palestine, and uh, both Tatiana and I have books coming out right now. So Tatiana, I think we wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about what it's like uh, as an author right now, trying to promote your book with everything that's going on in the world? I mean, for me personally, it's very hard and it's very difficult. Um, like I know a couple of yesterday I sent to my art team that like, hey, look, I haven't, I haven't been able to post anything. Um, so, and I felt bad. I'm like, if I can't, market my book right now I didn't feel comfortable asking other people to market my book quite frankly um and it's just you know my attention is elsewhere and before it was very interesting because I've only really gotten onto social media since I've been an author and that's been last year I wasn't very heavy on Instagram I wasn't very heavy on TikTok wasn't very heavy on Twitter um and so you know, those aren't very good spaces for discussion, <laughs> for nuance. Yeah. And um, and especially when, you know, like you personally want to make sure that you're informed, you want to keep up with everything that's going on. You have to wade through like all the different um, angles, all the different misinformation and um, just kind of people's very real emotional um, attachment to the conflict and to what's, what's happening and what's going on. Um, and even though like I've, made the decision not to do very minimal marketing at this time simply because I've tried and I can't. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's also a personal decision for every author because, for example, there, there are a lot of authors who this is their job. I mean, you know, like we live in a capitalist society. They expect us to like work from home during a pandemic <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, and that's hard too. And so like, I understand that choice. I know other people, this is a space where it's, you know, people's lives aren't on social media and sometimes their bookish accounts is very escapism. It's very, you know, like kind of their escape from reality. And then they cap when they, when they're offline, they go back and they have, they're having these discussions and they see, you know, or engaging with the, with the topic. And so if this is your escape, escapism, that's fine too. I, I think it's just a personal choice for everyone. But for me personally, this is just where I'm at right now. Yeah, because uh, James, uh, your book um, comes out, I think uh, we're recording this beforehand, but I think on the day this drops, it comes out today for our yeah. listeners. Um, how have you been dealing with this? So it, it's interesting because I... I have definitely been posting less, but I, I have posted uh, advertisements for my book. Um, so I was walking to work the other day and 
I was, you know, mindlessly listening to something on social media and I came across this tweet that said that the uh the national the, the registry in Gaza had officially removed 54 families completely from the registry. 54 family lines that were completely gone. Um and I like I I started to tear up about that and it's it's hard to see all of that and then go on and go like hey my book is coming out um and I typically especially since I've become an author I try to stay away from posting too much about political beliefs and things like that um but I feel like things like this, I I can't really stay silent. So I, I have posted a few things. Um, and because it's such a contentious issue, I, I have already, you know, had somebody come in and let me know they think I'm an anti-Semite because of what I've posted. Um, and so um, it's it's a hard time to kind of navigate what it means to be in a social media space. As you said, it's not a place for nuance. Uh, it's not a place for great discussion. Um, so, you know, it's all I can say is it's a rough time to kind of trying to be in a, a space that is escapist for a lot of people. Um, and we can only navigate the best we can. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I have like firm thoughts that can feel like that's an end to this conversation. But I, I do think that it is kind of looming over a lot of my thoughts at this time. So I'm I'm glad that we were able to address it a little bit before we get into the interview proper. Um, and thank you, Tatiana, for being open to having that brief conversation. And uh, we'd love to get into talking a little bit more about your upcoming release, Sister Samurai. Yes. Thank you. Um, oh, I was just going <laughs> to say thank you for the opportunity for um, this session, because, you know, I think it's a discussion that we don't hear very often, especially for authors, how to navigate a time like this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to do kind of a, a hard, awkward transition then into the interview, <laughs> uh, Tatiana, you have the uh, a forging of age duology and then this new novella, Sister Samurai, coming out uh, November 1st. Can you tell us a little bit more about your books? Sure. So the a Forging of Age duology, the first book in the series is Stone to the Wind. I don't know if you can see it. No, you can't see it with the... <laughs> oh, there we can. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and then you can see um, Dragging Your Bones, which is the second book in the series. So I published both of these books in 2022. It was my, Bones the Wind was my debut novel. Um, it is a desert fantasy adventure with a coming of age competition with windships and dragons. So it's very, like, it's a very sword and sorcery coming of age adventure. You have badass female characters, fun fight scenes, unique world building. Um, and then, you know, writing, writing that was a lot. <laughs> it took me four years to, to write that. And so I was like, okay, I just want to have a little fun. And this is where Sister Samurai came in. You can kind of see the proof copy here. Um, and it is an action fantasy novella. That's an homage to the anime Afro Samurai. It does bring in a lot of other 90s anime references. Um, and it's 
this world full of soul-sucking demons and you have Sister Samurai who's the last left of her order and the book is about just a very tiring day for her. <laughs> and it, it it so it was a really really fun read um but it, it kind of hits you later on in the book like this is this is just a day um and so you have this single day that's largely this internal journey of your one pov character and we get to see this limited view of the world and the lore that goes on from her perspective do you have plans to explore this world a little bit more through other novellas or novels? Ooh, this question right off the bat. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm, I need to explain my writing process here. I usually don't announce a project until I have a first draft, simply because that first draft, I'm telling myself the story and I very much will scrap it if I'm not enjoying it, if I don't like it. So while I do have plans of where I can go with it, um, there's no promises. <laughs> no, no promises. I don't know about you, James, but I, I do no. feel very nervous about announcing a project when there's nothing on the page. I mean, the only thing I feel comfortable announcing is like, I know that the current thing I'm writing is a trilogy. So I know that there will be another book there. Um, but like future projects, I am very vague about, like I have ideas for things, but I'm not going to tell people too much about it. Yeah, exactly. But for our listeners, the novella is very self-contained and it does stand on its own. So if I never, I mean, if I never write another one, it'll be kind of sad. <laughs> but the story is very much the story and it does have a middle beginning and end. Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a full meal on its own. But it it does leave you with a little bit of hunger for the rest of the world. I'm, I'm interested to see what else is going on. Um especially I think I'm interested in what what the brother monks are all about um because we only get to see them very briefly and for those of you who are wondering what that reference is read the book just read the book um and you can do that starting November 1st I'm gonna try to plug as much as I can <laughs> um Thank you. so why let's let's set the stage sister samurai at this point point in her life is in I guess her 40s or in her about 40s it's later in her life uh she's like lost this order of sister samurai around her why start the novella here and why write it as a novella rather than a novel okay so um kind of the conception story of this is like a couple years ago, I was looking to submit to an anthology and it was a short story. And for the, I, the idea, the anthology, like I had this idea that was like just black woman with a sword, like that, that's all that had popped in my head. Um, but as it didn't really fit that theme of that anthology. And I also was like, this is a really good idea. I want to keep it to myself. So I decided to keep that idea. And, um, and you know, an epic fantasy writer, I set out to write a short story and it turned into a novella. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the length that it was. But as you know, that I had that first image in my head, I put it on the back burner as I was working on the duology. But you know, like the ideas start, they keep, your brain keeps working on them. Yeah. And it wasn't very far where I was like, okay, what would the world building look like? And it was immediately Afro Samurai. Um, but like that, that was just right there. 
And um, so I knew I wanted to bring in like this love of Afro Samurai, kind of just like my frustrations with it growing up or my criticisms of it growing up. And then I also wanted it to be a love letter to the Black women around me. Um, I wanted it to be kind of a safe space for like all the Black girl nerds. And when I began brainstorming the plot, I really wanted it to be relatable to, you know, kind of that Black woman experience. And, you know, I thought of my mom and for a good chunk of my life, it was, um, it was just single parent household, my mom and my sister. And you know, it's just that that imagery of just how difficult and how heroic it is to come home every day and to do the things that she did to take care of us every single day. And I knew that I wanted it to really be relatable to that kind of everyday experience. Um, so I think one day the whole plot, <laughs> like the whole the whole novella, once those puzzle pieces were formed and decided on, the whole novella kind of played like a TV episode in my head. I'm like, ah, that's it. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so when I finally put it to page, it was just like, whoosh, like, yes, it was there. So I think like a good 80% of the book is pretty much the same as when I initially gave it to the beta readers. Um but like, I have to say this project is much different than my previous projects. Like the novella is different than the novels. Um, it, it, it does feel very surreal, sur surreal to say that it's like the easiest thing I've ever read it. Um, and you know, as a, as a writer, you kind of wonder why, and you, you think like, how can I replicate this process? Why was this so easy? And yeah. one, I do think because of the length, it's a novella, it's easier to kind of keep that in your head with the no novels everything's kind of intersecting and sometimes you don't know how it all works out until it's like on the page <laughs> but this was pretty much like a an art that like it's like okay I got it um two I didn't have to do much like research a lot of it was through like life experiences um a lot of it was already there I already knew a lot of Japanese history um because I've studied it uh, in college and I also studied abroad there um, I also, you know, like I, I love this anime, like I love samurai movies, like I love all of these tropes and, you know, it's just natural bringing that into it. Um, four, it also plays to my strengths as a writer, like I'm a very fast paced writer, <laughs> which is kind of odd in the fantasy genre, like I always have to remind myself, okay, slow down Tatiana, like you need, you need a pause here. Um, but because of the nature of the story and because of, you know, like this character feels very harried, I wanted the, the reader to feel very like, you know, like, ah, too. So the fast pace works to my favor here. Um, and, you know, just, I, I usually do like character, I'm also a character writer. So kind of like that action with character. So it really just played towards my strengths. Like I would say, honestly, the duology is my more ambitious project and you know this was just a chance for me to dance a little bit and have fun and it definitely seemed like a lot of fun to write uh because it was definitely fun to read oh uh, thank you yeah and and one of the the really fun elements to the whole thing is that it's it's a highly referential novella and I don't want to like spoil anybody by like talking about one of these uh any of these references are but um in vague terms, uh, where did you find the boundary between kind of introducing things as like a fun homage or reference to some of the things that you loved 
Um, and then just like breaking immersion in this, you know, secondary world. Um, was there anything you considered including and then held back? Or is there anything that you had to navigate with all of that? Yeah. So honestly, beta readers are very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Because honestly, when I gave it to them, it was more, what can I get away with? <laughs> Not what I can hold back. Like, okay, well, what can I get away with? Um, so it it was really great to have beta readers. Um, and especially to have the amount of beta readers I had this time. Because, you know, it's like starting out as a debut indie author, it's hard to get people to read your book, <laughs> to yeah. ask them to read your book. So with just the samurai, I actually had like quite a few people who were like, yeah, we're interested. I'm like, yes, great. So I had a very good um, sample of folks who came in and helped me. And I really appreciate all of their help and their support. Um, but through that process, one thing I learned and I was not expecting, I honestly thought that the audience for this book were people who only saw Afro Samurai like that's I was like okay that's that's the only people who are gonna be interested in this book why would anyone else want to read it like these this is how low my expectations usually are um but I learned quite quickly that no black lady with a sword it's cool we're like everyone was like yeah we want to read this so there's people there are a lot of beta readers who came in it with just a small knowledge of anime <laughs> never seen afro samurai and they're just like this is cool so that's when i learned that i had you know it's like the marvel problem that double audience where you know in the marvel movies they have to the movies have to appeal to the hardcore fans and so they have like the Easter eggs for all, you know, for all the movies and the fans. And then, but it also has to be accessible to the viewers coming into the story for the very first time. And that is what I found the problem that I, I had <laughs> with this novella. So there were actually some lines that some beta readers caught that were like, this doesn't make sense. And, you know, they they were some references to Afro Samurai that kind of went over their head. But, you know, if it didn't make sense to the story and if the story didn't make sense, even for those readers who didn't understand those references, I decided to take them out. So in regards to immersion breakers, like they really helped me like find the ones that were really like, eh, that's not really working. Um, but the funniest immersion breaker in the entire series was actually the anachronisms in the book. And for our audience, anachronisms are kind of um, things that are out of time, things that are out of place that don't exist, or in this case, that don't exist in feudal Japan. Um, and they're just, they're just like, yeah, every time it popped up, it just took me out of, took me out of the reading. But this is the one thing I was very adamant in keeping, because, you know, anachronisms is very important to Afro Samurai, very important to Samurai Champloo. It's very important to like these fusion genres that I really wanted to do an homage to and kind of like continue that genre. And I was like, I'm, I'm keeping it. I have to make it work. So how do I make these immersion breakers work? And it was really thinking about it coming from a, why wasn't it working first? And it, I think it really was the difference between anime storytelling and like western fantasy storytelling you know western fantasy a lot of like a lot of the world building has to be explained <laughs> like you know the like like everything 
like everything needs to be explained all the plot holes need to make sense where in anime sometimes it's just rule of cool and like it's just it's just there because it's awesome and no one's asking any questions (laughs) and so like it's like how do I fuse that together and make it work in this fusion book so it's also like fusing like um fusing like anime storytelling and western storytelling and so with the anachronisms i decided to one have like an end universe reason for why they existed um you know for (laughs) for my readers who just like i i can't there are readers who are like this doesn't make sense i need to have a reason it has to have a reason why it's there (laughs) or they just explode (laughs) and so that's for them and um but it, it gave it did give me a a little bit more freedom and and so it made them feel better when they saw all these other things they're just like okay this makes sense it's a vibe now <laughs> like it, we we it's, it's more acceptable um and also i did say front and center in the blurb hey there are anachronisms in this um you know the subtitle is a champloo novella champloo it's a fusion i hope you know what to expect so i gave all these signposts just to help people understand what this book is so they're not shocked when they get into it yeah i mean i, I it's interesting because it, there's there's definitely some like comedic aspects to this book it's also very serious in some ways and it blends it really well and uh, yeah I, it's definitely referential to afro samurai but i remember reading some scenes especially some specific fight scenes in this book where it's like this reads like and I'm trying to remember, is it Mugen from Samurai Champloo? Yeah. Um, it yeah, the breakdancing like, fight styles. <laughs> yeah, like, but even like the the angsty nature of the fighting kind of read like it would be, like this character was referencing Mugen more than it was referencing Af- Afro Samurai at some point. And it, it was very cool. Um, but that's just me also loving those shows. Yeah, I love them too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so throughout the story, there is one character that you reference through second person. Um, I I haven't seen second person work outside of N.K. Jemison. Um, and so like it's it's a high bar to make that work. So just referencing you constantly when referencing this specific person why why would you take that on (laughs) okay so it honestly felt like the approach chose me um so going back to that homage to afro samurai i knew i wanted a ninja ninja type of character in the book and i wanted to kind of um reimagine that character for this book specifically and for those who don't know what ninja who ninja ninja is He's sort of a foil that follows around the main protagonist, Afro, throughout the book. Um, And it's not until the end of the series that it suggests that this character was all a part of Afro's imagination. Now, there's theories that proves it and theories that rejects it. But as a writer, like, thematically, I like that interpretation. And so I really wanted to do something like that for the book. And... And so I really, like, 
And it was like, how can I make it work? How can I translate this character that's in Afro's imagination to this book that's in first person, <laughs> where you're very much in the head of the character and it's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, very funnily, like I, I had the idea of doing second person and I gave it to the beta readers and the beta readers are just like, what is this? <laughs> so like, stop, like, stop half-assing it and just go for it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I can curse. I'm so sorry. Can I? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Go for yeah, it. You're good. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was very timid when I actually gave it to the beta readers, beta readers. And they were just like, it's a good idea. Go for it. And I was like, okay, okay. All right. So like I went all in. So even myself, I understand like, yeah, second person is really hard to make it work. And um, I was also very nervous in doing it. So James, how did I do? No, I think you did a really good job. I think it, it, it was interesting being in the shoes of a reader reading second person when you're kind of personifying this. Is, is it spoilery if I mention what the you refers to? I'll hold back, but it, this character, it, it it felt interesting being a reader, being referred to as you in the space of this character. And I think that was a really interesting choice and it made it fun to read. Uh, so I think you did well with it. Um, Thank you. It's just, it's, it's a hard thing to do because I'm sure your beta readers told you like, I've never read in second person before. Uh, most people, when they hear something writ is written in second person, they're like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, so, no, hats off to you for for taking that on and, and you did well with it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was like, yeah, this works thematically. I have to go for it. Like, it's just, it, that's what the story requires. I have to do it well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. We've been focusing on kind of the the fun and funny elements of Sister Samurai. And there's definitely a lot of humor that runs through your novella. Um, but there's also a lot of other themes that run through your book around race, uh, depression and self-harm, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what themes were you hoping that readers took away after they read, uh, read your book? Hmm. Um, so I think we need to be specific here to which readers. Um, because my target audience, the book that I wrote this for, specifically like Black girl nerds, like I want them to feel seen. I want them to feel representative. Represented. I want to say, I see you. I see the fight you go through every day. And this is just my hug to you. Um, you know, just growing up, one of the biggest frustrations with traditional publishing, like I'm very grateful for the plethora of Black fantasy that we have now in the genre. But, you know, as a Black reader, you can sometimes tell when these books are edited towards a white gaze and they're not edited for you. <laughs> and so for a long time, I was just really craving a story that was for us that didn't, you know, was directed specifically to us. And um, in regards to everyone else that kind of comes into the book, um, you know, I've, I've been blessed with the luxury of having a very diverse friend group. And so one of my best friends growing up, she's Salvadorian, she'd often invite me to her house. And so when I go over to her house, I'd be like, okay, let me brush up on my Spanish so I can make sure I can, I greet her mother so I can make sure I can at least say hi to her. 
um, you know, like knowing that always accept the food, um, you know, just taking care of treating the home in the most respected manner possible. So I, you know, challenged myself, like I made the extra effort because I was a guest and they didn't have to invite me in their home into their safe space. So in exchange for all of that, I was well fed, you know, like I listened, I discovered new ways of doing things. I walked away more enriched and more human than I had been before. So for everyone else who's open, you know, to coming as a sister samurai, welcome to my house. I hope you enjoy this meal. It will be very well seasoned. <laughs> and I hope you walk walk away by the end of it more enriched and more human than you've been before. That is a, that is a very good answer. Um, it, it almost feels silly to get into kind of the, the, the funniness of the novel after that answer. Um, but I, I guess I do want to know, you did play around a lot in this novel. Um, there's a interlude in the middle of the book in which you have advertisements for well done sushi. Um, you start the book with a suggested soundtrack. You, you know, you have the second person in it. Was this like, in a way, a, just a playground for you as a writer to try out some new things? No, like, okay. <laughs> um, honestly, like the, the examples that you mentioned, I don't really feel them as experimental. As we had kind of discussed before, I wrote second person because I thought that's what the story required and that's mm -hmm. what the story needed. Um, the soundtrack, I mean, like, I'm doing an homage to Afro Samurai. How can I not have a soundtrack? Um, and, you know, like the commercial breaks, that was... Now that was a little bit of fun, um, you know, because for for a lot of my beta readers who are used to epic fantasy and not like the faster pace of action fantasy, they're like, this pacing is really fast. I was like, you know, I'll give you a breather. Commercial break. That's exactly what this book needs. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, um, I do, as an indie author, like, I really do enjoy having creative control over the entire process of the book like I know James in your book No Heartbird Thief you have like the game board like at the end yeah. of the book which is really cool so I like you know making sure like the chapter headed chapter headers the map like just everything like is a part of this art piece that I am working on I mean in my debut novel like I have like hold on, like a whole a whole page of fucks in my debut novel and like the the first the map at the beginning is just pictures like that is the type of stuff that I do like I love to just experiment with that type of with that type of stuff so just playing with format playing with things on the page and you'll see that also a little bit in the paperback too um how I use the function of the paperback to do some interesting things that I hope um support um, the story. Um, but, you know, I do think there are some parts of the book that I did experiment on as in things that, you know, like I don't usually do with my other books. And I think that would be the prose. So, you know, um, you know, as an author, I think my biggest self-doubt and biggest anxiety when sharing my writing was definitely about my grammar um like because 
you know, I didn't really grow up speaking correct English. <laughs> and so like a lot of the times, like, you know, especially grammar mistakes and things like that, I can't really hear them. I can't pick them. I can't because that's not how I speak. Um, but when it was indie publishing, I'm like, okay, great. Like it's a level playing field. I can get a proofreader. I can get a copy editor. I can get all of the things and it'll be just as professional as everyone else's. Um, but with Bones to the Wind, like I think I paid over a thousand dollars for all those things. And like readers, reviewers still say there's so many copy editing in the book. And, you know, it's just, it hurts me. It feels like I'm chasing, I'm doing nothing but chasing errors in, in my books. And, you know, as a perfectionist and as a Black indie author who people might not often give you that grace, <laughs> you know, like to come back to and, and it, you know, it is there, you know, there is that stereotype of, you know, like our books just aren't written as well. And so that does hurt me. And since the Samurai was the first time I think I was like, you know what, you're going to be in my house now. <laughs> like this book, the prose is going to be the rhythm of how I talk, of how I speak, like certain community sayings, certain community idioms that I hear, you know, like people around me talk and just try and show that like as beautiful as I hear it. So compared to all my other works, the prose is my first time doing prose that's more closer to like African American vernacular English. And I feel like that's where a lot of the experimentation um, that I did is from. No, and and I think it went really well. I mean, not your target target audience, but I think it it's hard to do prose in a way that it feels like you're being told a story rather than reading a story. And I think you accomplished that with Sister Samurai. Oh, thank you. Um, I have one last question before we transition into Dragonfire. Um, your your description of the sisterhood of the, the Sister Samurai. Uh, through like it's it's kind of they they had a process of becoming sister samurai that was really hard that put them together in this uh, in this sisterhood that ended up like they are the only ones who knew each other's names at the end everybody else just referred to them as sister samurai um it reminded me a bit of like greek life or the divine nine did you pull inspiration from any real life sisterhoods so I'm personally not a part of the Divine Nine. I have family members who are. And for those who are, you know, reading, the Divine Nine is like historically Black sororities and fraternities. Um, and, but being around it, <laughs> I very intentionally try not to bring any overt references to the, to the Divine Nine in the book, because one, those rivalries can be kind of intense. <laughs> and yes. also... Those organizations are very protective of how their iconography is used. So mm -hmm. always be very careful with that. Um, um, and two, in regards to like other sisterhoods, um, you often see like titles of like brother and sister used in the black church. And I also have family members who are part of the Eastern Star and Masons. So there was a lot of organizations around me that I can kind of go and ask like, hey, <laughs> like how... You're like, how would this be titled? But, you know, I think the biggest inspiration is just being Black. <laughs> like, you know, it's very common 
to meet like another black person on the street that you aren't familiar with and refer to them as brother or refer to like, oh, hey, hey, what's up? Sister? Like I just walked down the street, right? Um, and there's a long history behind it because, you know, during slavery, our families were broken apart and we kind of use these familial terms to kind of stay connected. Um, and, you know, that was also, we kind of re contextualized during the black power movement of the sixties as well, um, kind of bringing it into this kind of global awareness of like black power, black struggle, kind of black identity uh, within a global sense. And so that's definitely what I wanted to bring into like Sister Samurai. Um, Cause the setting is very unapologetically this black fantastical space where the entire diaspora <laughs> exists <laughs> for no reason, but we're all there. And, you know, and just all there in conversation with one another. So I really just wanted to like heal wounds and bring communities together and to just uplift one another and just get back to that. Like, you know, brother, I see you, sister, I see you. <laughs> I, I think that is a great place to transition. Uh, and we'll be getting into a little bit of dragon fire. Uh, and hopefully he'll have some fun with that, too. <laughs> And it's now time for our Dragonfire segment. Dragonfire is our time in the episode where we do a quick rundown of some random topics and we all collectively only have three minutes to give our answers and discuss it out. So for our first question, it's what animated character did you relate to most as a child? Uh, Tatiana, as our guest, would you like to start us off? Sure. So my, the one I related to the most would be Sailor Jupiter from Sailor Moon, because um, she was the oldest of the group, and I, well, the original group, the inner sailors, not the outer ones, um, because I'm the oldest sibling, the oldest of nine, so I feel her pain. I also liked her lightning powers, and I liked how she was more physical, because I also did martial arts. She was awesome. Sailor Jupiter. Okay. Um. So... I, I don't think this answer has ever changed for me, like icebreakers or anything. Raph from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I grew up like, I don't know why, but I had a chip on my shoulder as a kid growing up. And so I I had a really quick temper. And so like, I was just like, yeah, Raph and I, we get each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's just always related with that. You're so nice. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I've calmed down a little bit growing up. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, mine, uh, I probably shouldn't have been watching it as a kid, um, as young as I was, but I gotta go with Daria from the MTV show Daria. Oh, okay. Like the like you're just like you feel like you're too cool for school, like you feel like your family is like totally not so, but like you're the only normal one, even though you're just as crazy as they are. Uh, and that just described me as a kid. Like, I just always felt like, I don't know what's ever going on in this household. I can't wait to get out. And I'm just going to sit here and just like watch the thing burn down around me. That was definitely me. <laughs> All right. Now we're getting a glimpse into Nathan as well. Nice. I know. I know. There's there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on up here that, you know, we've got a lot of episodes upcoming that we could just explore more and more. <laughs> we need to have more of these like psychoanalyzing dragon fire questions oh, yeah. I know, even mine is part of a sisterhood so. yeah 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 and nine nine yeah I'm the wow i have one brother and that's a lot 
Yeah, me too. I have one <laughs> older brother and yeah, couldn't do anymore. All right. So let's move into uh, this next question. Related to Sister Samurai, this world is overrun with demons. So outside of, of course, Sister Samurai, what is the best piece of media featuring demons? And Nathan, I'm going to throw it to you this time. Okay. Um, I This might be a little bit of a recency bias, but um, I've been recently reading a manga series called uh, The Summer Hikaru Died, or Hikaru Died, uh, which is about uh, a teenage boy who finds out that his friend who disappeared for like a whole summer and then came back and was like, you know, found, um, is actually dead and is now possessed by a demon. And it's a really like spooky scary kind of creepy vibe but also like there's like a cute queer romance between them and um I've just been like really really into it um I think the second volume just like was released in English so it's a great time to jump in but that would be my pick for for something that was just on the top of my head Tatiana what do you got um so I'm gonna do a video game and choose Kingdom Hearts I mean, like, yeah. these demons are so dangerous. They brought together two disparate properties. I mean, who brings <laughs> Disney and Square Enix together? And it works. <laughs> Another fusion property, Kingdom Hearts. You were all about the fusion. Okay, I'm getting that. Um, I'm going to go with Constantine. I, I, especially I love the representation of Constantine in the DC animated universe. That, like, 16 uh, movie arc. I really enjoy that. It's It has everything that the DC movie universe does not or did not. We'll see what goes forward. Um, but I also love, like, I, I tried to get into some comics around Constantine, and I really like the, the like, just this quick-witted, dry, self-defacing humor. Um, I, I, I enjoy it. Yeah, since we have a minute left, um, can I shout out another manga series that I'm obsessed with that also has a demon in it, so it's also on theme? And this, I did not choose two answers. I gave one answer. There's just time left over, James. You're I just know breaking the rules this. again. Uh, Always breaking. The, this is what he does, Tatiana. I know. No, I'm here for manga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's called Versailles <laughs> of the Dead, and it's set during the Marie Antoinette era of France. But turns out that Marie Antoinette gets murdered by a bunch of zombies. And so her twin brother pretends to and dresses up as Marie Antoinette, but is also possessed by a demon. And so there's zombies and demons and it's super campy and super fun. And I highly recommend it. So yeah, I just wanted to shout out to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but seriously, yeah. We can, we can move on then to the next question, which is uh, what canceled show deserves another season uh james we'll start with you so i loved the first season of lovecraft county uh and i think that they could have done a lot more there were so many things left open so many storylines that didn't wrap up completely and i would love to see what they could do with a second season uh, unfortunately they didn't get it um i would have said Watchmen because I liked that better but I hear the showrunners just didn't they they were good with the season they got and they didn't have another story whereas I think it was different with Lovecraft County and they wanted to continue so that's why I'm going with them 
the yeah. the narrative around Lovecraft, and again, I don't know how accurate this is, is that the showrunner was really abusive. Oh, um, yeah, I heard. Did that, not know like, that. I mean, yeah, and I don't know if that was like HBO's like PR spin about like, oh, we're canceling it, and like, but like we're getting criticism because we're canceling like a show with like predominantly black creators and black cast. There's a whole thing about like, yeah, like just like toxic workplace culture that like was like the like HBO was kind of like waffling and that was kind of the death now once that started coming out again I don't know how accurate that is but that was kind of the party line yeah I haven't heard that either but I I definitely feel you James on compare it to Watchmen to Lovecraft Country like Lovecraft Country like there was just a lot of plot lines that just (laughs) yes left in the wind what was her name that like traveled back and forth through time and like just did not uh, I forget her name in the series um um, um I am Hippolyta or is that yes, a different Hippolyta yeah. that was a great episode yeah and, but she did not get enough like that didn't end <sighs> like I wanted more of that but yeah, yeah. That was great. Tatiana what do you think um so you know speaking of other you know like <laughs> maybe abusive workplace properties we don't we don't know because <laughs> you know like definitely firefly i want more of firefly but you yeah. know joss whedon isn't everyone's favorite <laughs> but like man firefly i i almost said that answer but i was like that's everybody's answer and i i can't use it but it i do want more firefly well thank you for giving it to me i appreciate it <laughs> oh nathan um, you need to go yeah um I mean, I beat this drum before on this podcast, but uh, Pushing Daisies. Um, that show deserved to go 10 seasons. And the fact that we only got like one and a half is just a tragedy. And so that's going to be my answer for now and forever and for always. <laughs> Although I think Brian Fuller, who created that and Hannibal and a bunch of other stuff, also just got like sued for like workplace harassment or something. So like, I, we just like all took L's on this one, I guess. <laughs> Why does everybody suck? <laughs> yeah yeah oh tatiana real quick favorite firefly character mall (laughs) (laughs) i like the roguish character did did i ever admit on this show that i've never seen any firefly like any of it no (laughs) nathan there there are times when i i'm I'm thinking about like we need to replace. I know. You is this is and... this better? Is this better or worse than the fact that the only Star Wars movie I've seen is the Phantom Menace? Like, <laughs> I I'll admit right now I don't care that much about Star Wars. I've seen okay. it all. Okay. <laughs> for the most part, I haven't seen like second or third season of the Mandalorian and all that, but all the movies and I, you know, on rewatch they're not as great without nostalgia. I mean, like, there's there's a lot of spaces to get in with Star Wars. There's only there's only one Firefly, a movie, I guess you can consider. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Best 90s cartoon theme music. Tatiana, so nobody else steals your answer. What do you got? Uh, I have two. <laughs> so... Okay, okay, so the first one is Pokemon, because I feel like whenever that music comes on, I'll probably know the words until I die. You know, like, I want to be the very best. Yep. Like, no one ever was. I will be dead in my casket singing the words to that song when it comes on. 
Um, my personal favorite is Tank from Cowboy Bebop. Like I have that as okay. my ringtone forever. Three, two, one, let's jam. <laughs> Nathan? Uh, I mean, Pokemon was also my answer. I know that a lot of like people have a lot of criticism about like the way that four kids like ruined all of these like anime shows. But no matter what, all of their theme songs slapped like Pokemon, yes. Yu-Gi-Oh, yes. Shaman King. They cooked every single time. Uh, and yeah, so that was my answer too. And because I didn't want to have two answers for all of them, because I always do, I only had one answer for that one. So that, that was it. <laughs> Oh, there it did not have any reason to go as hard as it did in that theme music. That is it, it's so good. I I could listen to that all the time. Like my wife and I were putting together a, a X-Men puzzle, like because we're nerds. Uh and like we both just kept on humming that song for like an hour and a half as we're putting together a puzzle. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, when I was thinking about the, my answer for this, I also thought of Kim Possible, but that's 2000s. And I thought like that, that's an answer to the question of the nineties, but that's also iconic. <laughs> All right. So we, ready to move on so our next question is to rank the following fantasy authors Fonda Lee Brandon Sanderson Robin Hobb Evan Winter and Rebecca Roanhorse uh does any do either of you want to go first I, I feel like this first. is the most dangerous question <laughs> I will go first okay so I'm going to be completely neutral and cheats and rank them by how many books they've written. <laughs> so number, <laughs> number one is Brandon Sanderson. Number two, Robin Hobb. Three, Rebecca Rowanhorse. Four, Fonda Lee. And five, Evan Winter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I did not. I did not go neutral. I, I went know. like full on, like what I think, because, uh, you know. I never hold back. Um, well, there so. was some like there was some authors I haven't read, so it's like I can't okay. make an accurate comparison. Like I, I can't do it. <laughs> it's too much anxiety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's fair. I, I mean, I wrote this question based on authors that I know, um, so that's a little cheating on my end, I guess. <laughs> um, but you know, I went number one with a series that I just finished, and I, I actively need more from this author Fonda Lee number I one I haven't read that one I know you're talking about the Jade Jade Legacy, Jade City right? Jade Legacy yeah, yeah Jade yeah. War I read her novella it's really good I'm like I can't yeah. read time was really good yeah it's really good oh. <laughs> I, I actually haven't read the novella but um I need to get that well you're and just saying you need to read more I read do more. I do <laughs> uh Robin Hobb is next for me um I love Robin Hobb uh, although Nathan and I are, always argue I'm not a big fan of the Mad Ship uh, or the the Live Ship series. Um, Evan Winter, I also loved his first book and I'm really anxious to get to the next one. Rebecca Roanhorse, <laughs> I, you know, I liked, uh, I really liked Black Sun, was not as keen on the ending, so that's why she's there. And then Sanderson, I think he's, you know, he's really good at what he does. 
Um, but I am so interested in pros and that is not where his strength lies. I think he's really great at world building and, and constructing magic systems, but yeah, that's where he stands for me. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of similar. Um, I went Robin Hobb number one because nobody beats, uh, probably underlings. Fondly though, right behind because, you know, we did our whole episode on, uh, kind of uh what jade Rainbow. city or jade legacy Rainbow saga um you know she's great and i love her um next i did go brandon sanderson and that's because i want to see a little bit more from evan winter before i can like really like put him up there um i think brandon sanderson showed that like while i don't think anything he's ever written has really blown me away there's a lot more diversity there in terms of like world building and like the stories he's telling um also, Evan Winter, I know you're probably not listening to this, but if you are, like, where's book three? Like, we need it. <laughs> like, uh, and then I put Rebecca Roanhorse last. Um, I've read both both Black Sun and what was the sequel to Black Sun called? Fevered Star. No, Fevered Star. Both of them are okay, but they never really hit for me. Um, I just felt like they were, like, slightly, like, plot-wise underdeveloped. I felt like book two had like severe middle book syndrome where nothing really happened and it was just like putting people in new places um so Rebecca Roanhorse really hasn't like really popped for me and I know she's popped for other people but she just hasn't worked for me in the same way yeah fun fact I consider Evan Winter my author nemesis I'm like Evan (laughs) I'm coming for your your black action fantasy crown so where's that third book you better watch (laughs) out I'm coming for it yeah apparently a gauntlet has been thrown down yeah which evan listens to every episode of this podcast um it's his favorite podcast i hear Um, (laughs) from no sources wait (laughs) watch it be randomly true um we have one last question and i i thought this was an interesting question because uh sister samurai got shouted out on uh daniel green's uh fantasy news but when murphy napier was reading it um and she extremely dislikes the word undulated like she's done a lot of videos on this which is in sister samurai so related to that do you have a word that you absolutely hate and what is it tatiana the moment she shouted out the book, I went into the book. I was like, wait, is Undulate there? <laughs> I would say that I've used it correctly, though. But yes. um, a word that I hate, it would probably have to be two words. Definitely. I never spelled that word correctly the first time. And the second one is the American spelling of gray. Like there's G-R-A-Y and mm-hmm. then there's a British spelling G-R-E-Y but the G-R-A-Y is just ugly to me. Like, I can't have it in my manuscript whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't like it. Some spellings are ugly. Fair enough. Nathan? I don't have a word that I universally hate. I feel like there's words that, like, authors will overuse, and, like, then I will start to hate them in that particular context, but I don't think that there's a word just, like, in general that I'm annoyed at if I encounter it to a book. I know I'm pretty boring on this one, but I just don't have that kind of word. Yeah, I I struggled with this, even though it's my question. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of is more so 
in real life, there is a word that I loathe. And that is literally because so few people actually use it correctly. And it just grates on my nerves. Like, literally, I lost my mind. Then you're dead. You're, you're yeah. no, you didn't. <laughs> that was a metaphor. <laughs> and and so just the the word critic in my mind just latches on to that one word, and uh, yeah, I can't stand especially misuses of the word literally, unless done ironically, which usually people are not doing it ironically. <laughs> All right. But I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I do want to remind everybody who is listening, November 1st, get Sister Samurai, pre-order it on Amazon if you're looking for the ebook. Um, you know, go ahead and support Tatiana by also getting um, the uh, age uh, Forging of Age duology, uh, which is also available um all all links will be in the information for this episode tatiana thank you so much for joining us and with that uh thank you for listening and you all have a